Welcome back, listeners. Um, I am joined today by Pamela Joy Trow. Pamela and I met years ago at an art event, and uh, I never had the the benefit of being able to actually sit down with Pamela and have a conversation until now. And uh, in prepping for this meeting, I learned that Pamela is a wonderful resource for turning your art into a business that makes money. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of fun things we can learn about. So to begin, thank you, Pamela, for taking time to talk to me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Ditto on the appreciation. So I guess uh, since there's so many things we can cover, I, I want to start with uh, on your bio, there was a note that you in 2008, you turned your art into the art of Pamela Joy Trout business. And so what was the, I guess, the um, what triggered? Impetus for that. Yeah, that's yeah. the word. I yeah, was trying well, to come up with that. Yeah, Thank okay, you. that's okay. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was living in Bend, Oregon at the time, which is located in the central Oregon in the incredible Pacific Northwest. And um, I had moved there with my then husband from Atlanta, Georgia. And I spent 13 years in Bend, Oregon, absolutely adored it. It was what an incredible place. And um, I was practicing my graphic design, illustration, creative direction work. So I had built uh, clientele up there. And so a lot of times, a lot of my clientele were nonprofits because I did a lot of branding work and they really, really needed it. And I was a very community minded person. I still am. And um, I did a lot of events for them to fundraise and um, it allowed me to uh, purchase products wholesale to sell for them. So um, I got a little bit into it. At the time, I um, uh, I had, it, this is kind of deep. This has got a lot going on with Go it. Go for it. Um, I had some history with wholesale before this. So when I lived in Atlanta, it's probably best to kind of talk about that um, because you don't just fall into wholesale. You know, there's something that um, introduces you to it. So I was at the time in Atlanta, I had a client that was, um, I was doing surface design for women's footwear. And so what that meant is I was illustrating images that were cut out in leather and put on the shoes. And I had to work within a trade show calendar and at the time, I had no idea what was going on, what, what the trade shows were and all that stuff. And what I learned was uh, they sold wholesale to boutiques, to big box stores, to cruise lines, et cetera. So the way that retailers buy, one of the ways is they go to trade shows that are created just for them to buy. And they go to places that are situated around the country where um, they have these trade shows. So these um, places include like Atlanta, Chicago, LA, um, Dallas, uh, places like that. So we were in Atlanta. So the Atlanta Mart was real close by and it's where one of the places that they attended a shoe show. So a lot of these trade shows were built around uh, particular categories, like it could be baby apparel, um, it could be jewelry. In this case, it was uh, women's footwear. And uh, so I had to create in such a way that they would be able to be ready to have these shoes, um, samples created for each of the salespeople, and being able to put them into the trade shows. So um, the trade shows might be six months out. And so what I did is I would create imagery. I would either draw it or uh, 
you know, sketch it on the computer. I would give it to the company. They would decide if they like it or if they wanted changes or they didn't want it. And ultimately, they would send it off to, in this case, the line was produced in Brazil. And um, so they would send it to Brazil just to get one shoe back. Okay, so Brazil, the shoe company just manufactured one and they would send it back and um, the company would decide if that's the shoe or if they needed changes to it. And then ultimately um, they would the the factory would get the go ahead to produce sample uh, pairs enough for 10 salespeople at the time. So, uh, and, and sample size shoes are size six. So all the shoes would be in that size. And, um, so anyway, I had to be ready to make that all happen. And then I had the opportunity to, to visit the trade show, uh, you know, where they showed all the shoes and retailers came to buy. And I was really just intrigued. And, and what happened was, um, I'm not too sure how long afterward it was, but, you know, as a creative, I was always creating something and I was doing some jewelry, some handmade um, artist jewelry. And I built up enough where I said to myself, um, what do I want to do with it? And most normal people would say, let's sell it to our friends and family. Instead, I went down to the Atlanta Apparel Mart, which is now called America's Mart. And got myself a rep. And um, so these places that these shows are held have um, sales reps for different manufacturers um, or different individuals that uh, are producing something. And so I went down and I got a rep in apparel uh, to sell my jewelry to, to stores. And um, it was an incredible experience because we did shows and those shows would happen depending on what, what, uh, you know, show it was, I'd have a show usually every three months or six months. And, um, the first show I did, I sold so much that (laughs) I had a hard time fulfilling the orders and, uh, man, did I learn the hard way. So um, because I was still working on orders, the next season came along and I said, oh, what am I going to do? So I brought my old board that had all the uh, original uh, earrings that I had. And I'll never forget the showroom, the wife of the showroom owner looked at me and looked at everything, said, this is what you sold last uh, season. And it was like, it hit me. Oh my God, I was supposed to have a whole new line for them. And uh, it wound up, the lessons I learned, which I now share with other artists that uh, want to do wholesale, is that you have to be able to scale, meaning, uh, you know, once you're selling your stuff and you might be selling to a big box store or to a store that orders quite a bit, you have to be able to produce it and send it out in the time frame they need it. And so that was the lesson that I learned from not being able to meet those deadlines. So I, I kind of did it for about a year and a half. And then I left because I knew I had to figure this out. So that was my entry into wholesale. Wow. There's a lot there. <laughs> a lot there. So, I know. Uh, so let me I know. try and dive into some of that stuff with my own experiences and see how it can kind of relate to okay. that. So um, okay. a lifetime ago, one of my first jobs was working at a drill bit factory in Miami and uh, I went to in Miami. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Miami, but, uh, I went okay. to this thing called the tigers of Asia show to help set up a booth for the, uh, the drill bit factory. And that was eye opening. It was a huge convention center and it was all these little mm-hmm. manufacturers from different Asian countries showing like, this is the new product. We want to get it in your store. Uh, And in my mind, that situation was a lot of manufacturers looking for buyers. So I guess it and again, I I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just helping move things up and set up a booth. So I guess in the Mm -hmm. situation or the the Atlanta show you went to, it's more it's I guess it's all sides of it happening. Right. So there's manufacturers 
looking for people to find someone that needs stuff manufactured. There's artists looking to find a manufacturer. There's wholesalers looking to be the go-between. Is it like, was it specifically tailored to one side of the industry or is it all sides? Well, actually, in all these um, shows, you actually sign up as either a vendor or a manufacturer or I forgot what the other categories were. So they cater to all of them. But um, the first one I went to um, after, you know, for myself, I wanted to go as a manufacturer, but I also wanted to talk to some of the people that were doing what I want to do. And I was told by um, the uh, folks that you sign up with, they said that I would, I would get better response if I did not come in as a manufacturer because manufacturer, they would think that you're copying them. So I came in as a store, as a retailer, mm. and um, you know was able to get a lot of uh, my questions answered that way. So when you came into that environment, did you have to have like a set booth or something and like entertain no, people as they uh, came to you, or you just have a badge and you're walking around and chatting? Well, again, as a um, vendor, uh, most of the so so the people that are, have the booths are usually the manufacturers which or the creators, so if you want to relate it to artists. And then the people that attend um, are, they could be people who are um, reps, sales reps, looking for uh, different organizations uh, to rep, depending on what the show was. In the case of like cards, greeting cards, there's reps that come in and you kind of want them to come into your booth and say, hey, you know, you want them to be interested. Um, and then you could also go, uh, most of the time you want, it's, you want vendors, you know, people that are there to buy, because the whole idea is to write orders um, from the booths. So, yeah, I think uh, the, if I understand why, what you're asking me, is the major purpose would be to have vendors buy your stuff. Right. Okay. So, but when you're doing that, you do have a set, you have a booth set up, right? You're sitting in a well, place. Well, I didn't and- come in as a manufacturer. Okay. Um, the shoe people, they were the manufacturer oh, gotcha. and they would come in and they would create um, a whole display of their shoes. Yeah. And you know what? Those displays um, are pretty, should be pretty incredible. You know, I remember when I first started to look into the Marts, um, I went to the holiday show and I visited the um, uh, showrooms for some of the big ornament companies. And oh my God, you would not believe these displays. One of them had literally rooms and each room had a, a display of a living room or a place wow. you would have a tree. And it would the whole tree might be 14 feet tall and it might be Victorian, it'd be all Victorian ornaments. Then you walk into another room and it's more um, retro. I mean, uh, and that was for a particular um, ornament uh, maker. I forgot his name, but he's real hot. And so it was just, it showed me the importance of um, displaying your work. So did you find it hard to be noticed when you're competing with that many larger companies and that many dramatic displays? Well, again, I wasn't behind. I wasn't in a booth. I was one of those vendors walking around and I haven't done the uh, trade show yet. In other words, (laughs) my means of getting my work out is I do online um, marketplaces that sometimes have trade shows online. Mm. Um, So, you know, the vendors, there's different ways that they buy. They buy at these shows. And a lot of times, you know, that used to be the only way they bought. But since the computer, um, we now have these trade shows online and people still go to the trade shows. Actually, the bigger stores go to search people out. Um, You know, there's an advantage for doing that because you can touch and feel and see the product, whereas online you're ordering it from a picture. Um, But it's expensive to attend these trade shows. It's expensive for the vendor. It would cost me a minimum of $10,000 to have a booth. Uh, And that includes getting your booth set up and getting everything here and all kinds of things. 
Um, whereas those expenses, you don't have that with online. And so a lot of vendors now too, because they have to spend the money sometimes for an airplane ticket and for their hospitality. You know, they have to um, get a hotel room. They have to pay fees to get around. A lot of them uh, use online marketplaces, and and the biggest one is called Fair, F A I R E. Yeah, so, I've I've sold through Fair, and um, I've uh, on an earlier episode, Gianna Pergamo, she does a lot of wholesale through mm-hmm. Fair too. So I'm curious to know right. your experience with it because I did not like it. Well, um, the thing about Fair is they're really the algorithm is very good for it when you first sign up. Um, so I got a lot of orders when I first signed up, and as time went by, and and more folks signed on and uh, were in the same category as me, the orders got less. But what what is good about it is I still get orders, and I still get orders from, uh, you know, reorders from the stores that bought from me. Because in wholesale, the thing, you know, you think, okay, I got a store to buy from me. Wow, I'm successful. This is great. But the truth is you want them to reorder, okay? You want to have them as a buyer all the time. And uh, so, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Um, and then, you know, there's other ways to get uh, retailers. It's not easy. You know, I do workshops teaching makers and um, artists on how to get their work into retail environments. And, um, you know, I, I teach this to them. But also, there's so much to wholesaling. It's not just... You know, a lot of us, including Gianna, we kind of learn by doing. And, um, you know, we kind of learned in the school of hard knocks, I guess you can say, just like the experience I was telling you about. Um, I, I wish I had something like what I offer today back then, because also the other thing, too, is I, I think what I offer helps you to make a decision if you want to move forward or not, because there's so much to it. Um, it's not just, you know, getting your stuff into a product line, but it's about making your stuff a product line that sells, you know, um, the artists that I cater to with the workshops tend to be artists that have been painting, for example, for a long time. So they have a library of images and, you know, they perhaps may think they want to do a, a greeting card line and put their stuff on the card. That doesn't mean it's going to sell. I mean, there's so much more to this than uh, the obvious. So it's a constant learning experience. (laughs) Well, I know we're going to be going all over the place with this because there's so many things to cover. But specifically with your workshops, I'm really curious about how you coordinate those. Like, is there a platform you use for your presentations? Is it just a video? Is it live? Is it all online? Is it in person? What's your history of developing those workshops? Well, um, the workshops started as an idea before COVID. I approached uh, Barbara Sinclair, the CEO of uh, Creative Pinellas with it, and she loved the idea. But then, of course, COVID hit. And then after COVID, we did the first series, and it was incredibly successful, and it was in person. And then... um, Uh, What I've done is uh, the Alliance for the Arts, which is an organization out of Fort Myers, Lee County, they contacted me. They somehow found out what I was doing. They contacted me and asked me if they'd do it for their um, constituents. And I said, yeah, but, you know, I'm not going to drive there and back (laughs) for three workshops. So we did it on Zoom. So I have it in two ways. I have it in person in Zoom. Now, the next step for me is I am going to make it videos so that people can get the course uh, when I'm sleeping. You know, I don't have to be there to do it. So that's my next intent with the workshops. It's sort of the next level. So I have been consulting for a few people on how to self-publish tarot decks. And because I've like been developing all of these resources like links and like how to interact with manufacturers in China and all that stuff in documents and things that I'm constantly rewriting. A while ago, I decided to let me try and actually just make a book 
and fund that book through Kickstarter like I fund all my other things. So I'm still super early in the stages of that. But have you thought about rather than just videos having other or maybe you already do have supplemental materials or like a checklist or like a to do list, things that people can tangibly follow um, with your courses? Um, yeah, um, I haven't set that up. What I do do is when people take my course, um, I let them know that I do consult, I do coach. And also I set up a Facebook page called Creativores and it's a private group. So I invite them in and it's a place where they can continue to ask questions. It's a place where I do what I call pearl posts, which are little pearls of wisdom, you know, um, uh, things to uh, do or not do with um, wholesale. Um, you know, there's so much to this and so much I can do. Um, I'm actually starting to think about wanting to maybe create some products and, and work on Kickstarter. I should really talk to you about that because oh, okay. uh, I never did do that. So that's something that, you know, I want to do. Um, well, with that, the yeah. first thing I always tell people is the biggest benefit of Kickstarter is not the fact that you are offsetting production costs. It's the fact that you're getting your your art in the front of the eyes of thousands of people all over the world who would never be able to find your art if you did your best of social media marketing. And what's also great about that is the ones that do fund the, that's your audience. Those are yeah. your, that's your tribe. You know, those are the people that are going to be um, supporting you. Yeah. So that's what I love about it. Um, how many did you get like more than you wanted on any uh, of those? Yeah, uh, I've done 17 Kickstarter projects so far. Wow. Um, my most recent crowdfunding campaign ended this morning and it failed. It was my first failure. And wow. um, it's the Women's Wheel project. I'm still super proud of it. We're going to redo it probably January of next year. But the biggest issue was I didn't use Kickstarter. I used a new platform from BackerKit, their crowdfunding campaign, which is uh, they've got just a handful of projects on it. So it doesn't have the traffic of people just browsing, looking for stuff to, to fund that Kickstarter does. So, so can't you just put it back on Kickstarter instead yeah, yeah. of waiting? Yeah, we can, but um, I want to reconfigure it. So like it was based on uh, 500 units, uh, the price quotes I got for 500 units of all the elements of the project. And we put a lot of stuff into the project, like an enamel coin, um, prints, uh, journals, all these things that are like, it makes the overall product more of a kit, but it doesn't really serve the true bare bones purpose of the original product. So when we reconfigure it, we're going to do it based on units of 250 quantity, and we're going to take out and strip out the things that are not absolutely necessary so that our funding goal is a lot lower. Uh, before $7,000, we're going to be trying to get a $2,000 target for the funding goal. Um, so at least at that point, if no one is interested in it on Kickstarter, we can still just put our own money into it to make it hit its goal. Um, and so, so I have a question for you. I have yeah, a question for go you. Go for it. So in my uh, workshops, I talk about sourcing and um, funding and all that stuff. And what comes up a lot is uh, producing in China, which it sounds like you've done. Yeah. And one of the things I usually tell folks is to be careful because, you know, COVID and China, uh, it really impacted getting your product. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of folks, their product was sitting in the ocean. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I know some folks that produce uh, these really high end journals, leather bound journals, and all of those are produced in China. And so they talked about, um, you know, they were biting their nails um, about getting it in time because a lot of them were, you know, they had a year uh, connected to it, you know, 1923, whatever it was. So um, my question to you is, have you encountered that? No, it uh, luckily didn't become an issue. Well, the the a few projects ago, I did have the 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 boat was stuck in San Francisco for about three months before it was able to get unloaded and go through customs. So there was a three month delay. 
but I had already baked in three months into the estimate. So I still ended up to delivering the items to the backers on time. But speaking of journals, uh, it I, I find all my manufacturers through Alibaba. This gorgeous moleskin journal that I got made uh, comes to $2 a unit when you order 100 oh of them. God. Custom printed pages. I got my own logo in there. I got uh, it's a dot journal. So it's for um, and then I got like an embossed logo in there, too. Um, and but how did you how did you feel about the manufacturer? Were you scared to, uh, you know, hoping that they would fulfill everything? And, no, um, no. Alibaba is great because uh, whenever you complete an order with someone, you write a review, you upload product photos. So if you're looking at manufacturers or looking at products on Alibaba, that's usually the way it works. You type in a product, you'll see a bunch of manufacturers that make them most in China, some India, some in the US. Uh, but then for each one, you'll see people who have ordered from them in the past you'll see their reviews oh, great. they'll review it on communication uh how quickly it arrived and the quality of the product and you'll also see their photos too plus the manufacturers are always happy to send you a sample it's usually a like ten dollars for a sample and thirty dollars shipping it's just something they have lying around so if it's something that's going to be a big order i usually ask for a sample first and then based on that i'll kind of change my numbers or decide to go with someone else mm-hmm Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. But anyways, let's, I, take, I let's like, talk about you a bit yeah, more. <laughs> okay. okay that's right. I, I enjoyed learning more about you. Let's take a look at, if you were to take a snapshot of your business in 2023, uh, what would the pie chart look like? Like what percentage is wholesale? What percentage is gallery sales, like traditional art sales, what percentage is licensing? I, I, like, what are your sources of income? And then how has that changed from 2008 to, to, to mm -hmm. 2023? Well, my pie chart would include wholesale D to C, direct to consumer, which might be shows or something, which I don't do a lot of. Um, it also includes consignment, Mm -hmm. And it includes, although I didn't have a lot of it this year, participating in shows, you know. So most of my income would be wholesale. And I have to say that uh, this year was a weird year. This is a tough year. For me, on a personal level, it was tough. I lost my sister in June. And um, I'm sorry to hear that. It literally did a number on my immune system. And I about two months later, I got pneumonia and then some other things happened. It was just been a roller coaster. I'm still recovering from. And uh, then the other thing is um, usually just like retailers, uh, the holiday season is a really good time to sell a lot of work. And this year has been freaky word. I mean, the stores are telling me things I don't want to hear, but it's things like, you know, that they've hardly gotten people in there and it's a time of the year in the past where they should have been um, inundated. Right. So, you know, I'm thinking about how, you know, what's doing this. And I know for sure that has a lot to do with, um, you know, next year being a political year, people are holding back on their money. You know, the economics is pretty slow. Um, and, you know, sadly, what we sell isn't a necessity, it's a desire. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's a lot of people holding back. Now, there's still a lot of people that will always buy from you and such. But when you're trying to make numbers and increase your numbers, you need everybody. So yeah. wholesale is your biggest chunk then. And has wholesale is it my biggest chunk. When would you say it became your biggest chunk as you as an art producing entity? Um, when I start, when I just, when I said I want it to be, because, mm -hmm. you know, getting um, buyers is a process in itself. So when I decided to do all the work to do that, and I still do it, you know, you have to constantly be doing it. Um, as I got buyers, you know, I, I depended on that. You know, of course, I did other things like, this past year, I had um, a grant, and uh, you know I've had three grants from uh, Creative Pinellas, and they occupied this this last one. Well, the one before the last was a ten thousand dollar grant that took a year wow. to you know. Um, it, I did a coloring book that 
was about water pollution. So mm -hmm. I had a, um, uh, a collaborator who was a scientist and we created, I, I created this story years ago and I finally decided to make it um, into something. And it's a coloring book. It's called, There's a Crystal Clear Pond. And it's about this little girl who comes into a new place and starts polluting the water and the creatures in, in the lake, in the water, the pond, and around save the day. And they do it in a particular way. So uh, what we wanted, what I wanted to do is to teach children and adults that when objects go into the water, the water changes that object, but the object also changes the water. And the way we showed that is we got uh, scanned electron microscopy photos of about seven different objects that the little girl dropped in the pond, you know, like styrofoam cups and um, plastic bags and things like that. And what scan electron microscopy is where you take an object and you, it's like a 10,000 magnification. So it no longer looks like the product, but instead you're seeing this world, this unseen world of, you know, uh, patterns and color, shape, and you don't see the product anymore. And so what we did is we showed, a, 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 we call them ESTs, um, SEMs. We showed a SEM of the product, and then we showed a SEM of the product three days after it's in a pond. And so you can see that there are changes. And um, the products that were actually more dangerous had little change to it because they didn't decompose. We kind of integrated some food and stuff, which isn't really um, an issue because it does decompose. But we wanted to show them what it looks like under the microscope. And so we did, uh, we scheduled nine workshops throughout uh, Pinellas County libraries. And then we did some workshops in other places. And so throughout the year, we did this. So it really occupied a lot of my time. And so, um, and in between that, I, I, you know, I continue to do what I do. So this year has been a real weird year for me. And I can't say it's something that I, I can use those numbers as a generality. It's just been a very strange year, you know, uh, and who knows what next year is going to bring. I mean, it's really, I think, going to depend on lots of things that are out of my control to a certain extent. I mean, all I can do is vote. <laughs> so if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> would it be fair to say then that the growth in wholesale you've experienced is not organic? It is your actual footwork of No, it, it can be organic for sure. Okay. Um but it also depends on what you do to make that happen. So um, you know, the more online trade shows I attend, the more possibility of customers. Fair does these marketplaces every so often where, you know, you have to give them, a, you know, percentage off or something, which is really, you know, fair and, and doing wholesale that way is really, um, it's a difficult way to really build your business because you are giving a percentage to Fair and uh, off of your wholesale price, not your retail price. Right. You know, and we, we know that. Wholesale is 50% of what you sell retail. And so you're talking about if you, um, you know, you have to give a percentage to fair, something like 2.9%. I forgot what it is. Uh, at, no, 15% plus that. And then you have, you know, if you're doing any kinds of uh, promotions, you know, you're taking another chunk out of it. So the bottom line is uh, with wholesale, you know, you're making money on selling volume. Right. And you have to sell volume. I mean, if you're not selling volume, then go back to D to C, you know, selling directly to consumers. So it's really it's a it's somewhat of a, a dance, I guess you can say. Um, but there's definitely an organic aspect uh, of how much you put into it. Um, you know, because although I have buyers that repeat buying, I'm constantly working on getting new buyers. But I'm also constantly trying to retain the uh, buyers that keep coming back. You know, the, the um, experience is all about relationships and relationship building. And, and in all honesty, that's about any kind of sales. You know, I don't care if you're selling nails 
um, it, it's about establishing an emotional connection with people so much so that they're buying your work over anybody else that has any similarity to your work. So um, it's a lot of energy. No, I totally get that, especially in an environment where you're using a marketplace, you're you're automatically compared to other people because they find you through a search search algorithm. They're not walking into your studio. They're typing in whatever and a bunch of similar things come up. So you really need to have that personal touch because that's the best way to edge yourself out out of the other people who are showing up in those same search results. Yeah, but that's like, you know, the whole idea is to have different venues to bring in your people. And so um, with the marketplace, the other thing you have to deal with is the algorithm. So as I told you before on FAIR, you tend to, they, they set up the algorithm so that, you know, it's it's kind of like a drug, you know. People come in and buy and you're there. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they start, they change the algorithm to be more beneficial to the new people. And so, um, and, and you have to participate in a lot of these promotions in order to get pushed out there. So, you know, you've got that to deal with too. But, you know, the, the truth is you don't want to uh, depend on FAIR as your only resource. Um, there's other ways of finding your people. Um, and I teach that in the workshop. And it's about um, making connections through Instagram. Uh, it's about finding uh, people that, uh, I call it benchmarking. You know, benchmarking is a business term for uh, looking at uh, similar uh, business that sells similar things that are similar to you. And you look at them not to beat them up, but you look to them as to what are they doing successfully? And then seeing, can you do that? You know, can you um, actually make it work for you by using whatever they do to successfully get their product or business out there? Okay. So, but there's a lot of ways to do it. Well, another uh, benefit to the Kickstarter is most of my wholesale orders have been people who found my product on Kickstarter, and then they've reached out to me to see if they can do a wholesale order. So those are always fun messages to get. Yeah, (laughs) because your project and the whole campaign always exists in perpetuity on Kickstarter. And when it ends, you can add a big button that uh, takes people to your website so they can buy it now that the campaign's over. But what's wonderful about that is it makes sense that retailers that are innovative, they want they want product that not everybody else has. Mm-hmm. So they probably look at Kickstarter for a way. What's the coolest thing going on? Most likely it's not necessarily all the way out there yet. And I can see where that's a fabulous way for them to go. And I, I, I think I want to do that. But I think for me, I've, I've got to think of that project that I want to do. You know, the thing about all of this is we do what we do because we have a passion for it. I mean, this criteria that we have to meet in order to sell it within um, the way we sell it, you know, um, because, you know, when you decide to sell your art, you no longer are creating just for you. You know, one of the biggest problems in anything to do with marketing and sales is that people tend to think about themselves first rather than the buyer. And it's important to think about when somebody uh, wants to buy your tarot cards or buy my stickers or bookmarks or whatever, um, why are they buying it from me? And what is it that makes them want to connect to it, to buy it and then to come back and buy more, right? So that's why it's important to really have a strong sense of who your audience is. And like, for example, for me, um, you know, niche markets are good. Niche markets are markets within markets. Okay. So for example, um, if you um, have a product that you see goes to uh, uh, pet owners, right? Okay. So you've got pet stores, you know, what kinds of places do you have um, to get that sold? So um, how do you niche that though? If that's your market is the pet's world. How do you niche it? Well, you niche it by, well, maybe you only do uh, dog products or cat products. Um, 
And that's great because then what happens, it allows you to go deeper down in the potential buyers, you know, um, what, who, what kind of um, opportunities are available for just dogs? You know, you can approach groomers, okay? I mean, there's different um, folks that you can approach based on your audience, right? The one thing you don't want to do is to be so niche that you don't have an audience. So, for example, let's say you're making collars, pet collars. You don't want to make pet collars for iguanas, right? Not everybody <laughs> has iguanas. <laughs> but, you know, you want to find out what kind of pets are uh, popular and you make that for them. Rather than, um, you know, I want to make pet collars for who, whatever kind of pet there is, only for my pet. You can't do that. You're not, you're not going to be successful with that. So you have to think broader and you have to think about how is the person who wants this going to buy me? You know, what do they want for me? You know, how do you solve a problem for them? You know, because maybe your pet collar does something like um, maybe it holds uh, some sort of electronic uh, beacon so you can find your dog wherever they might be, you know, something special like that. So you have to think deeper. To add, to add to what you're saying, there's always a Venn diagram for your product. And that's mm -hmm. something that I, in, that I picture when I think about how I'm going to market one of my things that I'm putting on Kickstarter. So for example, let's say I have a board game, which is one of the coming out soon, uh, a board game about propagating houseplants. If I market it just to people who are board gamers, yeah, I'll get a lot of people interested in it, but I'm now competing for their attention with thousands of other right. board games out there. Exactly. So the exactly. other half of that market of people who might be interested are people who propagate houseplants. So they might not be board gamers, but they might see this game and be interested. So there's always a yeah, second you market. Also, you also have, excuse me, but you also have nurseries and yeah. you have, <laughs> um, you know, flower shops. You've got places that have the audience, you know, yes. you don't have to think about mm -hmm. the audience as a direct sale. You know, that's D to C. That's true. Yeah. But if you think about the retailers and who they reach, they'll reach more of your buyers than you could. Mm -hmm. You see? So that's a good way to think about it, too. So let's let's talk about about what you offer for wholesale. So I know you do greeting cards. I know you do stickers. What else do you do? I do greeting cards, stickers, bookmarks, um, luggage tags. Um, what else? Um I just started pins. Um, I, I, you know, one of the things I'm doing is, and what I try to tell my my uh, the, uh, students is that it's not about offering so many products. I didn't I didn't add products until about three years after doing greeting cards. Okay, um, you, you know, you don't want to. Uh, reduce or dilute your thinking and your skills and everything, you want to make sure that the product that you're selling works well with everything else you're selling. So for example, um, the next thing I got into was stickers because stickers is really considered low hanging fruit in the industry. You sell a lot of stickers. They're low priced. People love them because it's, uh, you know, affordable. They can go into a store and buy a bunch of stickers and stick it on water bottles and skateboards and anything that they want to express themselves with. Right. So I went into that and I did see that it was very, you know, I wound up and I still sell mostly cards and stickers out of everything. And then the other thing you want to do is when you create a, an image, you want to, you know, it'd be nice if you can make sure that that image can work on other products. So like I'll have, um, um, I have uh, greeting cards of goddesses, right? And I made bookmarks out of them. Um, it, it just worked well for bookmarks because the goddesses also have attributes uh, that you can relate to with that goddess. And so I always look for what's the appropriate product. I don't just put stuff on products, you know, because there's some products that don't work as um, you know, I do art prints too, by the way, I forgot to say that there's products that only work well as art prints and they don't work as greeting cards. Um, I feel like your goddesses uh, would work yeah. well as an Oracle deck. 
Probably. You know, I've thought about a tarot deck and I tell you what, one of the things I respect about you and that intrigued me about you is that uh, you took the time to create these beautiful illustrations for what's over a hundred, isn't it over a hundred cards? There's 78 in a traditional Rider Waite tarot deck. Um, I'm working on my third tarot deck right now. See, that's profound to me because, you know, when you enter the market with greeting cards, the suggestion is you should have a minimum of 60 cards, right? I've got 300, right? You are doing, you know, more than the 60. I mean, you can take your, your I'm sure, your images and you can put them into other prod, um, products if you want it. Yeah, I sell it prints might not be worth and it, I've right? made bookmarks yeah. and some shirts, but... Yeah. yeah, none but of them the have sold well as the your, original deck. Yeah. yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, and it also takes special. You know, it might take special marketing for that too. Um, but you know, you'll always have something that sells better than the other thing. Um, but I'm very, very uh, impressed with what you do because you're sticking with your tarot cards and your games, and Thank you. they have particular niche audiences. But you, you have a number of people and stores that would buy that. Thank you. Do you sell to stores yet? I do. Do So um, I mentioned that uh, I've had a few wholesale orders. Most of those have been Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Italy. Um, Are are you not afraid that the Hong Kong is going to copy your cards? No, because they've reordered from me. So, okay. And plus like if I, I'm, I'm in, it's not like I'm sitting on a thousand decks and I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to sell them. I probably sell maybe two a week through my website, maybe one a week through Etsy. So like they're slowly trickling out and probably this time next year I'll be out and I can start a third edition, which will be another reason to have a Kickstarter project. So, so do you reprint or you just do another subject? Uh, both. So my, uh, my, my first tarot deck, Eros Tarot, I'm on the second edition now. And when I did the second edition, it was a second Kickstarter project, which raised more money than the first one. Cause it brought back, uh, a lot of people who I guess wanted to go the first time, but it sold out. So they couldn't get it. So now this was their opportunity to get it. Oh, it allowed me to try a different manufacturer, allowed me to add additional cards so I can go above the 78 that are required. So it's fun kind of revisiting that project and trying to recreate that old art style I did a few years ago. So I will do a, sec- a third edition when there's enough demand and it hasn't been on the market long enough that it, I feel like it's time to do that third edition. Same with my first Oracle deck, the Goracle deck, which I'm almost sold out of now. So I'll give that some time to like once people start messaging me saying, hey, where can I buy this thing? I'll be like, sorry, it's sold out. After I do that a few times, I'll be like, "Okay, there's demand up there now for me to do a second edition of that. That's great. And I love the idea of so like with Kickstarter, you you can't have two projects running at the same time. And it also looks very bad if you've launched a crowdfunding campaign and haven't delivered on the previous one. So I want to always constantly be either delivering or crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. And what's the difference uh, between, are you calling Kickstarter crowdfunding? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Crowdfunding, I guess, is the category, but yeah. Kickstarter is the biggest one, but there's also Indiegogo, right. there's GameFound, and uh, crowdfunding by BackerKit. And then you just stay with Kickstarter because you know it works, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's got the biggest audience of people just constantly browsing, looking for stuff to throw money at, Mm -hmm. (laughs) from my experience. But you know what? You mentioned something that's really important, and that is um, how you're going to a different manufacturer. You know, one of the Mm -hmm. issues about what we do is sourcing, you know, finding those sources that produce something in quality, um, affordable, they deliver on time. I mean, those are all things that I, I promise you, if you're in here long enough, you're going to have problems, you know, with your um, vendors, uh, with your uh, manufacturers of the product. And, you know, that is something that, oh, man, it's been such a journey. You know, I've had um, manufacturers that um, just deliver such a bad product, particularly if you go on to, if you work with online printers and such, that's a real scary thing to do because, um, you know, everybody and their mother is buying from them. 
and a lot of time they they just deliver bad product and for some reason I don't know why they think you'll accept it and if you don't it they make you go through this process of um, uh, you know providing proof and all this stuff and you don't get it uh, resolved for quite some time so uh, when you find somebody that does a good job and meets all those criteria you just don't let them go right <laughs> right yeah well I mean the reason why I switched from Eros tarot first edition to second edition is because it's an erotic tarot deck with nudity the manufacturer in China got in trouble with the local government oh, because really? that's illegal there so I had to have so they couldn't ship it to me so I had to have an American company pick it up and then bring it back to me so oh when I did the God. second edition uh, but I love that manufacturer I've used them for everything else since um, but for the second edition I got an American company to print it out of California and communication with them was terrible really and the quality wasn't the best but I mean the cards themselves were great the box like all the best material all the best equipment is in china there's no way around it yeah. so like you're doing you're really doing the best you can do by sticking in america but if i do a third edition there's a, a manufacturer in india i want to try out so i might do a sample with them and see how it goes and did you I'm find sure them? india doesn't care about nudity oh okay did you find them in alibaba <laughs> yes yes mm -hmm. yeah that's good to so, know so which of your wholesale items are you manufacturing yourself you mean literally creating? Uh, or oh, no, I mean, like, are, are you printing your own prints at home? Uh, are you no, die sublimating? I don't. I don't. I'll be honest with you. I, I try not to do the actual work. I mean, I can make more money, but my time, it's my time. And I, I, don't, I don't employ anybody yet, even as an intern. It's something to think about, but I don't do that yet. So everything is more about... Um, getting dependable vendors to do it. So, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. But so do you store it all at your house and then like ship it out when people need that? Or? Yes, I do. Well, yes, I do. But <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. You wouldn't believe my bedroom's a bedroom. But um, actually, I started to get involved in POD, print on demand. Mm -hmm. And I really love it but it's got its own problem so print on My demand shirt is print on demand yeah. oh is it okay so yeah. for your listeners yeah. print on demand mm -hmm. is where you go to a company that either has uh, a bunch of producers or they produce work themselves and you can they have like anything from uh blank t-shirts or um you know uh, slacks, caps, whatever, and also things like mugs and uh, hardline things, shower curtains, um, all kinds of things. And what they do is they'll, they'll link to your Etsy or your Shopify or Squarespace uh, website, and um, you produce uh, all this stuff as a link, as a post on your Etsy shop and all these places. And when somebody buys it, you know, they think they're getting it from you. But what's happening is the order is going into the print-on-demand supplier, and they are producing it, and they ship it to your buyer. Now, that all sounds wonderful and dandy when it works. One of the problems with print-on-demand is, you know, these places are big, so they do make mistakes, and particularly when they get really busy, and what happens is because they, let's say you're doing a mug and it comes back, um, you know, off center or something like that. You don't know that because it's being shipped directly to the buyer. And the buyer, is, they perceive that it's your problem, that you are the one um, that, you know, didn't think about this or didn't do your quality control. And what happens, you know, you have to explain to them how you're doing it, but it still doesn't change their attitude about you. Um, and then it takes like I said before, this whole process to get it fixed because you're working with this third party who's super busy, right? And so they have a particular process that you have to fulfill through. So there can be some um, good things about POD and definitely some bad things about POD. So far, I've been liking it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So w when I first started with uh, POD, the main manufacturers I worked with were 
Printful and Printify. Printify was incredibly inconsistent with the quality of the samples I was getting, so I stopped dealing with them. And they don't actually do any printing themselves. It's just like a right. hub of different printers around the country. Right. Printful, meanwhile, everything I've gotten from them has been fantastic quality, and they also do QC on everything before they ship it to the backer. So like if oh, you wow. put an order on their website, you'll see what stage it is in. It'll be like stage one, picking, stage two, printing, stage three, um, quality control, stage four, packing, stage five, shipping. That's and awesome. Yeah. yeah, so I love them and they're, they've are they been great. I had a whole conversation on an earlier episode with our local artist, Mark Williams, about how we've been using them and other companies on our websites with the, the correct thing. But like, so related to that, when I first started with Printful, I overdid it. I made t-shirts, prints, uh, mugs, uh, laptop sleeves for just about every illustration I ever did. And my website was a hot mess. Yeah. Um, so I, I've noticed like you, you kind of with when confronted with too much choice, your customers will choose to just leave the website. Hmm. So I feel like I've gotten better returns when I severely reduced what I'm offering. And maybe just have like seasonal collection that could just rotate or so. But, but, but I want to add something is uh, it, it's also about navigation on your website and the quality of the navigation. So um, if you have a way to let them know, well, you offer all this and they can get to it by, you know, clicking. So uh, in other words, when they open up to your website, they're not necessarily seeing everything that you do on one page. So to me, the answer to that would be to have some excellent navigation on your website to get people to go where they want to go. Because usually they come into your website, and they tend to have an idea of what they're looking for. You know, sometimes right. people are just looking through it. And but if you have a drop down and a good navigation, you know, they can go to where they want to. So, um, yeah. But I think that's great that you're trying it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely need to have, I want, I want to hire a professional to look at my site and evaluate it. Cause I mean, my biggest sellers are just the tarot decks, the Oracle decks and things like that, which I'm fine with, but like, I, I want to be able to see how someone who comes into my site to buy a tarot deck, how I can convince them to also buy a t-shirt with their favorite card from the tarot deck or buy a print or something like uh -huh. that. Like I want to sell, I want to increase, I want to increase the, the purchase of each person who comes to the site. Right. But anyways. Right. Yes. You so want let, to increase the AOV, which is average order value. There's there a lot go. of terminology <laughs> in wholesale. So let's talk a bit about your organization or your your um, interaction with your involvement. That's the word. Your involvement with the Zodiac Committee. Oh, um, okay. That's a big switch. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we're already like 58, 57 minutes in. I oh, know we sorry. could probably talk for two hours, but. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Sure. Okay. So go, go ahead. Tell us All about right, the Zodiac so, Committee. Um, I'm on the Zodiac Committee of the Dali Museum. So what is the Zodiac Committee? Well, the Zodiac, the original Zodiac Committee was formed in 1930 um, when uh, Dali was not so famous. He had 12 patrons that supported him, one each month for that year, in return for a painting. And so um, the concept of the Zodiac Committee was reinstated in, um, I think it was 1996 at the Dali Museum to serve a particular purpose. And that purpose is basically to um, work with um, membership and create programs that excite members and maybe even bring in more members, or, you know, have members re-up. Um, uh, so it, it, it's really about us being ambassadors of the museum. And uh, one of the, the way I got involved with it is one of the signature events is called the Dolly Dozen. And each member um, of the committee, uh, again, there's 12 of them. And by the way, we do have a liaison to the museum and we have the goddess uh, Megan Moyer, <laughs> she's our membership director for the museum, and she's also our liaison. Um, so uh, this Dolly Dozen uh, is a one night in December 
these artists get to show their work to members. And we recently added non-members can buy a ticket to it too. And um, I had the incredible opportunity to be a Dolly Dozen artist in 2018. I was contacted by Marie Jones, who's no longer on the committee, but um, she was on the committee and I got a call from her and she said she was walking through, I think it was Treehouse Gallery at the time where I had some work. And she said, you know, she loved my work and she wanted me to be her artist. And I was, oh my God, I was so uh, just honored because, I mean, as an artist and as a uh, person on the committee, you can pick anybody you want, you know? I mean, any artist, and you know our community is filled with phenomenal artists. So um, I got to be a Dolly Dozen artist, and then um, after it, um, she asked if I want to participate in being on the Zodiac Committee, and of course, didn't have to think twice, I said yes. And so um, I started on the committee in 2019. Um, and uh, I'm so excited about this year's Dolly Dozen. Uh, we Some things happen, and a lot of us on the committee got to pick two artists. It's very rare that we get to do that. So one of my artists is Jessica Oxner, who creates bikinis and accessories to those bikinis, like straps and buckles, that you can change, and the bikini becomes something totally new and fresh. And she's probably one of our first um, fashion-oriented artists. And then my other artist, I don't know if you might have heard of him, is uh, this guy named Nicholas Rivera. Have you heard of him? <laughs> <laughs> I'm familiar. I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah. So I'm so excited to have you. I thought about you uh, more than just for this one in the past. And I'm so excited when this opportunity came up because I had had uh, talked with uh, Jessica a long time ago, like at the beginning of the year. And um, anyway, I'm so glad that you're doing it. And I'm so excited. Uh, one of the things we started last year that we're going to do again is best of show. We're going to have um, the people who attend get to select who they like the best. And I'm very um, honored. Thank you yeah, so much again so, for, yeah, for I can't wait nominating for it, me for I, this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not, a, it's not a show where you're selling your work. You're, it's about uh, introducing you to people and, you know, they go somewhere else to buy your work, whatever. But um, I found it to be so exciting. So many people were interested in what I do and, um, you know, I even got a wholesale account out of it. So nice. you never know what you're going to get, right? You know, uh, it's an honor. So I'm looking forward to it and I'm looking forward uh, for you um, to enjoy it and share your incredible work. Well, I do feel like it's a big deal. I mean, so like one, one of the other things that this is having me think about is last year I applied to the uh, Creative Pinellas Emerging Artist Grant and I didn't get it. Uh, so I was so soured by it that I decided not to apply this year. But next year, I know my resume would be stronger because I've got the Dolly Dozen and I've been doing this podcast. So I feel like in that, e even before Dolly Dozen has happened, I feel like it's possibly opening up doors for me. Yeah. Um, it, it might, it might, it, it might uh, prevent you from getting emerging artists because you might be not be perceived as emerging. You know, you have to think about that too. But um, look, Anything like this, not everybody gets to do it. You know, there's an honor to it. And putting that on your C CV or resume or whatever you want to call it, I mean, is a nice uh, nick in the, the belt, you know. So, um, again, it's not like you really go in there with the intent on selling. It's a different kind of attitude. It's more about exposure and, um, you know, people uh, – you know, the, the people that attend these events um, love art. You know, they they are your audience, right? It's an automatic audience. So it's about gaining those folks, too. Um, maybe they'll buy off your website or whatever. Well, again, thank you so much for that. And this oh, yeah. has been an incredible conversation. I know we could <laughs> we could go on for hours, but uh, uh, <laughs> I don't so want I know. I, I don't want to. I don't want to put our listeners through too much. So I'll probably just have to have <laughs> you on again at some point. Right. So, um, if anyone who wants to follow you or learn more about your workshops, uh, 
you are available at PamelaJoyTrow.com. That's spelled yes, that's P-A-M. My, that's my shop. Yeah. But um, I do want to say that um, they can friend me on Facebook where I kind of put everything. And um, I'm always posting when the next workshop is. And by the way, I can tell you when that is. Um, oh, great. The, the, so the workshops, the first one is uh, about uh, wholesale, what that is. The second one is creating a product line. And the third one is about um, how to create a greeting card line. And so um, although you can take any one, the best way to do it is to take them all. But uh, the third one is happening on November 15th, and it's a Zoom one, and it's uh, – being sponsored by the Alliance for the Arts. So you would go to artinlee, that's leecounty.org, A-R-T-I-N-L-E-E.org to sign up for that one. And then um, we are starting again in January. And again, if you friend me, I can, you know, you'll get all the information. And then the Morian is going to be doing uh, an in-person workshop series starting January 13th for the first one, then the following weekend, these are Saturday workshops, is workshop two, and the following weekend is workshop three. And I'm in discussion with other organizations um, about holding this. So um, there's no excuse you should be able to attend any of them. Thank you so much. Yeah, this episode is also going to be coming out, I want to say... November 29th, so just before, yeah, so the week before Dolly Dozen, uh, which is going to be Wednesday, December 6th, and I'm going to see you there, I hope. <laughs> of course I'll be there. Okay, great. I'll be great. there for you, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll put all these links, too, in the show notes, so thank you again so it. much, Pamela. Thank you, Nick. You're wonderful. I look forward to um, this experience with you. Thank you. Art for Profit's Sake is recorded through Riverside FM, distributed through Spotify for Podcasters, and edited on Adobe Audition. The music is provided by Old Romans. If you learned anything useful or found this podcast helpful, please rate and review us five stars. If you want to learn more about me or my art, head over to chainassembly.com. <laughs>